Our scripture passage for tonight is out of uh, Genesis 17. If you would like to follow along, it's on page 10 of uh, what's in the Pew Bible. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. First... For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for, the, for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, and all those born in his household are bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Well, thank you to Collins for reading that rather long and rather strange piece of narrative from Genesis 17. I can always tell a passage is going to be difficult to preach, depending on how many phone calls I get from the children's teacher uh, the week before. Uh, see, at our church, we've, we've made a commitment to try and teach at least our, our older kids out of the same scripture passage that we learn about up here. And that way, there's some continuity when we go home. We can talk about things together the same 
themes. So um, this week, Morgan's going to try and teach our kids on, on Genesis 17, and I'll be interested to see what she comes up with. Um, I gave her some ideas, but then I just said, you know, if it's too much, just teach Noah's Ark or something, which, of course, in that story, besides animals and boats, you also have uh, God killing everybody. So I don't know which one's tougher to teach. Um, but Genesis 17, if anything, reminds us how ancient this story is set, how different a culture and language is from our own. And so what we're going to do is um, the 17th chapter is broken up quite nicely into four main sections. And what I'm going to do is take each section one at a time, and I'll try and uncover some of the weirdness and, and make it make a little more sense, and then see what God is trying to say for us today in each of those four sections. Sound good? Stick with me on that? All right, so before we dive into to chapter 17, I want to set the scene a little bit just to remind us where we're at in the story. Um, we are in Genesis. That very word, Genesis, the name of the book in Hebrew, Bereshit, means beginning. This is the beginning. In fact, the first words in Genesis are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In, be in the beginning, God created all things. And we learn that God created among those all things. He created men and women, and he created us in his very image. Meaning that human beings are created to reflect God's character and his goodness and his creativity. And his care for each other and for all of creation. That's what we're created to be, to reflect the godness. At one point now, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, were tempted. They were tempted that maybe God didn't have their best interests in mind. That maybe he really didn't know what was best for them, and so they disobeyed him. They thought maybe they could be happier going their own way of it. They disobeyed God, were removed from fellowship, but God had compassion on this couple. He clothed them and protected them, and he promised that one day the seed or the descendants of this woman Eve would crush the head of the serpent. Well, from then on, Genesis, uh, the, the beginning chapters of Genesis is just saga after saga of of Adam and Eve's kids. We've got this line of Cain, which repeatedly they seem to not do the right things. They keep moving east, which is a bad sign of Genesis. And then you have the line of Seth, which aren't much better, but they hold some kind of promise. And over and over, we, again, we see humanity failing. And actually, they keep failing worse and worse and worse. And so we get to chapter 12 in Genesis, and God intervenes in human history by choosing a man. A man named Abram, and he chooses this guy to bless and to make, through his offspring, the salvation of the entire creation. And that blows me away. Now, in previous weeks, we've seen just how unlikely a guy this Abram was for God to do anything through, let alone save the world through. First of all, he was a pagan. He probably was really involved in the moon wor uh, worship of the moon god. Second, he was married to a woman who was barren. She couldn't have children. So here's this guy that God is going to choose to save the world through, his offspring, and he can't have kids, and he's already worshiping some other god. Despite... All the human roadblocks, God chose Abram and declared that he would rescue the world through Abram. That he would bless Abram's offspring in order to be a blessing to the world. 
Now, we've seen Abram and his wife Sarai have varying triumphs and some deep failures. Last week, Sarah Matichuk uh, preached wonderfully on Genesis 16 and how Sarai and Abram grow tired of waiting on God to produce a child between them. And so they, 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 they devise a plan and they say, well, Abram, why don't you sleep with my, um, my slave girl, Hagar, and we'll, we'll create a child of our own. And so Hagar gives birth to a son named Ishmael, which means God hears. If you missed that message, by the way, it's online. I highly recommend you listen to it. It's, it's wonderful. So that gets us to our story this evening, a story that begins with a time marker. It tells us that Abram is 99 years old. I've said this over and over again, but there are few wasted words in Scripture. Why are they telling us that Abram is 99 years old? Well, between chapter 16, basically between last week and this week, 13 years have gone by. 13 years have passed since chapter 16. 13 years of Abram and Sarai not having any of their own children together. 13 years of apparent silence from God. If there was any talking, it's not in the Bible. 13 years of perhaps believing that Ishmael, Abram's son with Hagar, might be the promise bearer. And then God appears to Abram. Now, as I said earlier, this chapter can be easily divided into four main sections. So this first main section, verses 1 through 8, is a redefining, a clarification, a tightening up of the covenant between God and Abram and Abram's family. Here the covenant gets more specific. God appears to Abram and introduces himself as El Shaddai which is a notoriously difficult name to translate. But in the context, it generally means the God who is able to make the barren fertile, the God who is able to fulfill his promises. So for 13 years, Abram and Sarai have been wondering what on earth is going on, and here God shows up and introduces himself as El Shaddai, the God who can get stuff done that he promised. Okay? Previously... God called Abram by grace alone. There is no apparent reason why God would pick Abram over anybody else. In fact, you could argue there's lots of reasons why he shouldn't have picked Abram. Maybe it's that God is in the habit of choosing the weakest, the ones whom the powerful might look down upon, the most unlikely. In any case, God, God's call on Abram is pure grace. Abram was made the promise bearer by God's initiative alone. But here we see for the first time that God begins to make a demand on Abram. He calls Abram to walk before him and to be blameless. This is a call for Abram to orient his entire life around God. To make obedience to God and a relationship to God the most important thing in his life. Now, we hear this word blameless in our Western minds because we're influenced by the Greeks and other things like that. And we, when, we, when I think of blameless, I think absolutely without flaw. Perfect. That's not what this means. God does not expect flawlessness. What he's calling for is integrity. It's a life oriented around God such that Abram's normal disposition is to obey. His normal disposition is to seek after God. And when he fails, it's failing in the right direction. His mistakes are to be the exception to the norm. 
God's inclusion of Abram into his plan to rescue the world is by pure grace. But here we see that Abram is called to have a part in this decision as well. The invitation is grace. And then he says, Abram, you, here's your end of the deal. He's to trust and follow God. And then we get this declaration by God that begins with these words. As for me, God's as for me is a formula. It's, a, it's basically a formula for listen up, listen up. This is what you can expect from my end of the deal. Okay, so God says, as for me, and then Abram's ears are going to perk up because, okay, this is the good stuff. This is what God's going to do. God goes on to explain that he's going to make Abram a father of many nations. And God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. While Abraham is something like, like father of a ham, which is short for Hamon, which means crowd or multitude. So now Abram is not just exalted father, but Abraham means father of many, father of many nations. God says, Abraham, you are going to be the father of nations and kings. And he also says... That Abram, Abraham, your seeds, your descendants are going to inherit this covenant too. So now it's not just for Abraham and his family, but it's for all his descendants. The first section is a clarification of the promise to Abraham. Now you think that God's showing up in someone's life and outlining a bunch of great things that he wants to do for you would be really, really good news. And, and I'm sure it was to Abraham. But let's try to bring this home for just a moment. God gave Abraham a promise 13 years ago. Actually, he started this whole thing over 20 years prior to this. Abraham, ever since, has been living in the shadow of that promise. How would it be accomplished? Was he even on the right track? Was Ishmael the one that God would use to accomplish the plan? And by the way, for the last 13 years, God, where have you been? How about you? How does your life look right now compared to the way you thought it might look five years ago? Or 13 years ago? Or 30 years ago? What have been the losses that you have experienced? The things that you were counting on that aren't shaping up the way you thought? What are, the, what are some of the pleasant surprises that you never would have thought your life would look this way? What new vision for life has been introduced that's drastically different than it was before? I think it is so easy to get into a mindset of cruise control in life. In fact, it, we're Christians, but so often we think in a deist mindset. Deism is where you believe in a God who gets everything going, creates the world, starts spinning it like a globetrotter, and then leaves it in the air and steps back, not interested in our world, not involved in our life anymore. And sometimes we get on this track like God is just something out there uninterested in anything going on down here. And it's when I get in that mindset... When I think of the loss of things that I thought were going to be in my life that look quite different, it's good to remember in this passage that our God is El Shaddai. 
The one who takes barrenness and makes it fertile. And sometimes that means literally, like in Sarah's case, and sometimes it means giving a new definition of fertility, a new source of hopes for lives that are shattered, new dream, a new source of life is presented. That's what El Shaddai can do, breathing hope where there's barrenness. El Shaddai is the God who makes all things new, the God who can bring promise and hope out of despair. And this is the God not only of Abraham in Genesis, but this is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that is very good news. Our second section begins in verse 9 with more covenant language. This time, God addresses Abraham and says, as for you, again, formulaic language. This time it means, hey, listen up. This is your end of the deal. You are to keep my covenant. You're to have all the males in your house circumcised, every male from eight days up and older, even your foreign servants, everyone in your house, whether they're Hebrew or not, they're to be circumcised and part of this, this club we're making here. And let's be honest, this is where the story gets just plain weird, right? Like, it would be something if God says, okay, here's your end of the deal, love your neighbor as yourself, which he does eventually, but why this? Why circumcision? How did he get from fathering a nation to cutting off... Yeah, I mean, how do you get there? Well, if it helps, it, it might not. But if it helps, circumcision was performed in other cultures predating our story. In fact, it's been customary in almost uh, most cultures except for Europe and Central and East Asia. In the ancient Near East, it was common enough in Abram's day for, for God not to have to explain what circumcision was, but not so common that Abraham and his family were already circumcised. So it was around, but Abraham wasn't a player in that circumcised world. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, circumcision was a rite of passage that one went through at puberty or maybe right before marriage. It was in one way a sacrifice to the deity of fertility. Uh, and other cultures uh, that we have some of their writings, it was just a cleanliness deal. But here, we see God taking a unique spin on circumcision. He takes a, something practiced in pagan secular culture, and he makes it a, a symbol of belonging. Here, God is invoking circumcision as a sign of grace and belonging. How is it a sign of grace? Well, circumcision was relatively common in other groups later on in life, but Israel was the only group that did it at eight days old. Circumcising infants shows that belonging to God's people was not something you had to earn. It was something that you're born into by grace. Second, the sign of belonging was from the very beginning far more than for ethnic Israel. From the very beginning, it was for all the foreigners in Abraham's household. Third, this sign of belonging is also a reminder that with great blessing comes great responsibility. The fact that circumcision takes place on the reproductive organ is a reminder that if the people were unfaithful to God, then they could be cut off from the promise of these many descendants. So, circumcision is a sign. A symbol. It's an action 
that represents a greater reality. Let's look at a few signs or symbols for a moment. Job, why don't you put up that first one? What is that sign or symbol? It's apple, right? Apple. And what does that sign evoke besides a weird cult? Um, what is one of Apple's things that they say? It just works. It just works, right? Steve Jobs used to always say that when he would do his keynote thing. It, it just works. And I think that that's, whether it's true or not, one of the, the things that some people like about Macintosh or Apple products is that they just you come out of the box, it's kind of intuitive, they just work. Now, what's this next sign? Huh? The bat signal, right? Right? In, the, uh, in Batman Begins... You know, you've got Bruce Wayne, and he's training to be kind of a, a bad fighter, right? And, he, and, and, uh, and his mentor at the time, Ra's al Ghul, isn't that a cool name? Uh, <clears throat> Ra's al Ghul says, hey, you know, if you're just a man, you can bleed, you can be beaten up. But if you're a symbol, if you're a legend, if you are an idea, then you're something bigger than that. Now, what would happen if Apple products just really started to stink? The symbol would be worthless. What if Batman got all fat and pudgy? He was coming out of his suit, and he kept getting beat up by petty crooks. Like, the symbol wouldn't be menacing anymore. It would be a joke. <laughs> Who's going to kick butt on Batman this week? Right? So symbols only represent a greater reality. You can take the Batman off. Thanks. Yeah. And so it is with the sign of circumcision. In the years following this decree by God to have all the males circumcised, people would begin to rely on the fact that they had this sign, had this circumcision, and they would say, hey, I'm totally cool with God because I have, I've been cut. And it wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with their heart or with the way that they lived their life. They thought they were in God's family because of their ethnic heritage because of some piece of skin missing, rather than trusting in the living God. You see, from the very beginning, the promise to Abraham had two elements. The promise had a biological component and a spiritual component. Through the line of Abraham, kids would be born. You get Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and Obed and Jesse and David and Solomon. And through this line you get Jesus of Nazareth. Through the biology of Abraham. But the promise also has a spiritual component. The promise was always, always, hear this, it was always for the whole world. Even in Genesis 17, we see God including these foreigners in this covenant people. The promise is always for the world. And in the New Testament, when, when Jesus charges his disciples to go and make disciples of whom? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all the things that he has taught them. The promise of God's presence, being part of God's family, is now given to all who put their faith in Jesus, Jew or Gentile like me and like many of you. Through Jesus we are called children of Abraham. The promise of God's presence, being part of God's family, is now given to all of us through faith in Christ. And instead of circumcision, 
Christians have a sign, the sign of baptism. We go under the water, symbolizing our death with Christ. We come out, we break the crest of the waters, representing being raised to walk in new life. For children, we may also, in some traditions, practice infant baptism, like circumcision as a sign of grace, of doing nothing to have to merit entrance into God's family. But circumcision, like baptism, or baptism like circumcision, can be an empty symbol. It can be meaningless if we do not trust. We can go through the motions, but never really trust in Jesus. And thankfully, signs and symbols, and not even Batman, can save us. They are important and even commanded, but they cannot rescue us. Only Jesus can. So often, we put our faith in outward signs, baptism and communion, Bible studies, gathering for worship, serving our community, all great things, and all absolutely lifeless without Christ. The good news of this section is that God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. All who place their faith in Jesus are the seed of Abraham. And Paul talks about this over and over again, how Christ alone is our peace, who made the two groups, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, right? This is the mystery that, that Christ revealed to Paul, and he was able to share with the Ephesians, and the Colossians, and the Romans, and all the letters, he's talking about this wonderful news that the two groups are made into one spiritual seed of Abraham. In section 3, God speaks again with the formulaic, as for me. So now God's going to ante up some more on his end of the deal, indicating he's going to make another promise. He changes Sarai's name to Sarah. Both names roughly mean princess, but whereas her birth name was probably connected with her moon worship, God's name implies that she will be a princess of nations and kings because God said so. Her role as a princess is now in part of God's story and God's plan. To this news, Abraham falls on his face in one action as an act of worship, and he laughs out of disbelief. He's like, this is crazy. I'm 99 years old. She's 90. How is this really going to happen? Abraham says, oh, God, you know, that's really nice and everything, but I've got a better idea. Why don't you just bless Ishmael? The kid's already 13, like bar mitzvah age. He's ready to go, and I'll make it easier on you. You obviously haven't thought this through, God. Just bless Ishmael. To which God replies... I'll, I'll bless him, all right, but I'm going to fulfill my plan through your and Sarah's son, Isaac, which is really funny because in Hebrew, it means laughter. It's kind of ironic, right? Like Abraham laughs at God's decree, and then all of a sudden God says, I know what would be kind of funny. Let's name your kid Isaac. Let's name it Laughter. God is extremely gracious promises to bless Ishmael too. He's going to make Ishmael great, and he's going to have many descendants. 
but the promise will be through the line of Isaac. So what does this third section really teach us? That God has a sense of humor by naming Isaac laughter after Abraham's laughter, maybe. God certainly does have a sense of humor. Does it teach us that he's faithful to Sarah and shows her compassion and honor? Well, yes, that's certainly there. But something that hit me deeply in this passage is the way that God can redeem our past failures. We all make mistakes, some a lot more serious than others. We've hurt people. We've made decisions based on selfishness, and we've walked over people. Some have made decisions that continue to haunt you, that you can't let go of. Decisions that you think can never be redeemed. Abraham and Sarah made some decisions like that. In fact, they brought a son into the world. You see, they had a plan. But their plan didn't include God and his counsel. And it didn't include much faith. And what they find out is that Ishmael, for all of their scheming and planning, is not part of that promised plan. But Abraham, Ishmael's father, cries out to God. Cries out to God on this son's behalf. Listen, I know he's not part of your plan, but could you bless him anyway? He's still my kid. And you know what? God has compassion on Ishmael and Abraham. God doesn't alter his own plan. He's still going to bring it about through Isaac, but he greatly blesses Ishmael. And he blesses Abraham. And Abraham, for all his mistakes, seems to be failing and falling in the right direction. I don't know if you ever feel like that, but sometimes I feel like I'm just stumbling and it happens to be in the right direction, like right into God's grace, into God's grace, into God's grace. Here Abraham falls toward God. He tries to follow God and he just keeps making mistakes, but God is gracious beyond all measure. Romans 8.28 says, And God works all things for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And this is Romans 8.28 stuff right here. Over a thousand years before any Romans 8.28 was on people's minds. Friends, when we repent and turn toward Jesus, there is nothing, nothing he cannot redeem and make new and turn right. There is no sin too great, no deed too shameful, no, mis no mistake too grave to separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? Finally, in section 4, verses 23 through 27, Abraham obeys. There's no weird cultural stuff I have to unpack for you there. No weird Hebrew language stuff. He just does it. Hopefully at this point in the sermon, you're not thinking you're obligated to cut anything. But here's what I have to conclude with. What if our God is El Shaddai? The one in whom we can hope to restore all things. To take dead things and make them live. And if this God is the one who makes us part of his family, 
through faith in Jesus and through baptism. And if this, is the, if this is the same God who can work all things for good, even our deepest and darkest moments, then what does turning to him look like for you? You know, maybe it means receiving Jesus and his forgiveness for the first time. Hey, let me know. Let me know if that's true for you. I'd love to celebrate with you. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you've allowed the symbol of your baptism, of being part of the church, to be an empty symbol without substance. You can ask God afresh, what does a living faith look like for you? On that one, I hope you know that that's common. There are days this year when I wake up and I feel like a phantom of a man. Like a talking head without substance. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where you're going through the motions and somehow you left yourself somewhere. You got too busy. God will help you find yourself. Maybe there's something that you've either done to make you feel disqualified from God and his family, or something you've lost, a great grief that you carry. And it's too much for you to even hope that it could be redeemed. That's what El Shaddai can do. That's what this passage is telling us. This weird Genesis 17 thing is telling us that there is nothing outside of his ability to make new. Would you pray with me? Father, I just sense a big disconnect in a way between the message that your scriptures are talking about. Your character, your ability to make new. I sense a disconnect between that information and really owning it in our hearts. Really believing it so that we can surrender. I pray, Holy Spirit, for a miracle of faith for every one of us that we'd be able to receive this good news deep in our hearts in a way that we haven't before whether that's for the first time or for the thousandth time or in just a deeper way El Shaddai I'm thankful that you are the God who makes all things new and I pray that you would make us new and give us hope. There's areas of our life and people in our lives from which we may have lost hope.